is the Enter Sadman Podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, hello again. Welcome to the Enter Sad Men Podcast. I'm Richard. I'm here as ever with Mark and with Steve. And we are ready to review another three albums uh, to put in our Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We're on episode, yeah, a bit of a milestone tonight, episode number 75. So we've reached uh, three quarters of a century in episodes, which means uh, we will be putting albums up to number 225, if I've got my maths right, into our Hall of Fame. The best list of the albums that you must own, might own, and maybe shouldn't own. Please do visit us at entersadmen.co.uk where all of the details of the Hall of Fame, the albums we've reviewed, all of the previous episodes are there for you to have a look at. So, yeah, so we've got something special for our 75th episode. I mean, randomly selected, of course, always by our Tico Torres Tombola of Topics and Themes. And uh, last time, Tico spat out drummers. So we've had keyboardists, uh, we've had bassists, this time uh, we've got uh, drummers to select, uh, and uh, we've got, as it always, three very varied and different albums for your delectation, and we're going to talk about them, we're going to analyse them, we're going to really you know, delve into the depths of each track, because that's what we do differently here. We look at these albums track by track and score them that way, so you can tell that the Hall of Fame really, really has some depth right we better get on with it by i suppose uh, introducing our three albums for tonight steve mark are you ready uh mark do you want to go first with your choice of drummers yeah i can do that uh really simple for me actually i did give it some thought but i think in the back of my head i always had this particular drummer in mind leonard hayes from YMT yesterday and today and I kind of ignored the opportunity to go with stuff like Earthshaker um, and the later albums sort of post Knee Street which we've already done and I went back to their second album from 1978 which was uh, on London Records and it was struck down so yeah one of my favourite albums of all time I still listen to it I've always listened to it over the years so um, I mean what I would say, of course, is that we're ultimately we're very objective about this stuff. It's not a perfect album. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But it's certainly my top three YMT uh, albums anyway. So, yeah, really interested to know what you two think about it as well. But we'll find that out. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be the second one, isn't it? Because, um, Steve, you've gone even earlier than 1978. Well, I mean, you thought I was going to pick Alex Van Halen. Because why wouldn't you? I'm a massive Van Halen fan, and there's you know a couple of albums yet to do. Um, and the only other one I could think of possibly doing was um, Peter James Bond, just to find out you know whether he really did spontaneously combust on stage or not. Um, <laughs> but I went for uh, just an old favourite, a real old favourite of mine, which is um, that's still going now. We don't play the drums anymore. And that's Phil Collins. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, huge fan of, and. Um, as I said before, when we reviewed Genesis's Nursery Crime, and so this episode, this show, we're going to do the next one, Fox Drop. So that's where yeah. I'm going. See, when you said Phil Collins, I was kind of hoping you were going to go for No Jacket Required or <laughs> Studio. But yeah, no, you right. went for some obscure fucking shit from the early 70s. Well done. Yeah, 
Thanks for that, my friend. <laughs> yeah, and please do listen back to several other versions of this podcast for more obscure shit from the early 70s. Yeah, I think two excellent examples of the work of those two gentlemen. As for me, well, I can't go Neil Peart because we've only just done Rush. So um, uh, I, I think Tico did this deliberately. Uh, so I had to pick another of my favourites. And uh, I've gone for Mr. Jeff Porcaro uh, of Toto and the classic album of theirs, Toto 4. Before we get into reviewing them in depth, let's have a little listen to what's been between our ears over the past couple of weeks. Before we carry on, ordinarily the three of us are quite kind of chatty on what's happened the week leading up to this. <laughs> <laughs> it has been really, really quiet for the last seven days. And I can never work out whether that's you two hate the albums that you've chosen apart from <laughs> or whether you've been so blown away by it you want to keep your power to dry. So yeah. it's going to be a really interesting because i have no idea what you think about struck down steve you've got no idea what the two of us think about no, foxtrot no, no. and richie no. you've got no idea what steve and i think mm-hmm. about Four. and that is probably the first episode we've done where we don't have a slight clue about how we all feel yeah well, well what, I, what i would say is that whenever we don't like an album it, it doesn't take long for the vitriol to set in so <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly encouraged by the uh by the radio silence, I have to say, but uh, we shall see. One, yeah, I've been focused. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, for one of these albums, I've had yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and two, in terms of mine, about this one, I couldn't give a shit. <laughs> uh, right, uh, there you go. There's a, a, a bit of a taster. Uh, and uh, as always, we review these albums in chronological order. Who'd have thought with an album from 1982, I'd still be going last? <laughs> uh, because we're 
We're uh, we're starting in the uh, the early seventies, the eighteen seventies, nineteen seventies, and uh, Genesis and Foxtrot. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah. Genesis Foxtrot. We have, of course, extolled the excellence, as I said, of um, Phil Collins before when we reviewed Nursery Crime, which was in episode whenever, and when we reviewed it very favourably, as I recall. Um, I certainly love that album, and I love this one as well. I've always said to you, and I know Mark disagrees, well, I don't know if disagrees, but Mark's a you know, big fan of Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. To me, Genesis had that holy trinity, starting with Nursery Crime, 71, Selling England by the Pound, 73, sandwiching this one, Foxtrot, where Genesis... I maintain and I protest they were absolutely at, the, at their best. They're most imaginative. They never got better, in my eyes. But here's the deal. We're talking drums, and therefore I'm not in the least bit qualified to do this. So luckily Richard is, because fuck me. I mean, I'm listening to this stuff, and, and there's a hell of a lot going on, as indeed you two are both well aware. And I'm not going to sit here and try and kind of scientifically understand any of it, because I'm just going to make an arse of myself. And, I, and I'm quite happy making an arse of myself generally, but... I'm just not happy in this situation. So I'm going to leave Richard to talk through the nuts and bolts of all this bollocks because I haven't got a clue what's going on. All I know is I've listened to this album for donkey's years and I never, ever tire of it. Never, ever tire of it. But probably for the first time, and in light of what this episode is about, I have been listening. On a couple of occasions, I've listened to it just through Phil Collins. And I know what I like in the drummer. Um, and I know I like listening to what he does. I think he's interesting. Um, he's not boring, certainly he's not a timekeeper. He's part of the band, an integral part of the band. They're all musos, all five of them. You wouldn't get away with being boring because their whole musical tapestry is kind of such a feast. And he plays up to expectations, as far as I'm concerned. I'd say first thoughts on the album as a whole, as I say, it's majestic. Six tracks, that's all there is. Three epics, and I fucking mean epics in, in the truest sense of that word. Proper, full-on OTT prog epics, the sort of epics that make Stargazer look like a football chant. That's where we are with this. And there's a wonderful mini epic on as well, because <laughs> three epics, let's do a little mini epic as well, and a couple of fillers, which will have Genesis fans choking on their horlicks, because they don't do fillers, but there are a couple of things on there that literally that's what they are. Just a few facts. So released on October the 6th, 1972, it was recorded in August to September 1972 on the Charisma label. It's 51 minutes long. Um, the producer was Dave Hitchcock. He didn't start out as a producer. The producer started as John Anthony, who they'd used on Nursery Crime. I think Musical Differences is the one well, they inverted commas, isn't it? I think they just fucking fell out. I, I, I doubt Genesis were that easy to work with. So they, they went to Dave Hitchcock and produced a lot of it themselves at Island Studios in London. Um, as I say, Nursery Crime was the one before. Selling England by the Pound was the next studio album, but Genesis Live came out before that. So that was the the one after it. You all know the band. This is the classic Genesis lineup of Peter Gabriel on vocals and flutes. I'm not going to list all the instruments. Steve Hackett on guitar, and Dan Dan, Tony Banks on keys, etc., etc., etc. Mike Rutherford on bass, and Phil Collins on drums. It reached 12 in the UK, and it didn't chart in the US. It sold 60,000 over here, went silver. Must have sold more than that, but that's what it says on Wikipedia. And the tracks, as I say, six of them. Four on side one, Watch with the Skies, Timetable, Get Them Out by Friday, Can, Utility, and the Coastliners. There's no love song here, is there? Anything like that. And side two, Horizons and Supper's Ready. So it's proper, and Supper's Ready, of course, is this ludicrous 23-minute epic of epic. I'm going to keep using the word epic, and I'm, and I'm unashamed to do so, because that's exactly what it is. Watch Oh
there's nothing quite like listening to early Genesis to make you feel like you're an absolute fucking ignorant. <laughs> I didn't really know. I, well, no, I didn't really know. I didn't know this album. I knew Supper's Ready. Uh, I'm one of the <clears throat> lucky few thousand, I guess, mm-hmm. who've seen them perform it live in its entirety back in 1982 when they were touring Abacab. I didn't even know. I mean, every, the, the whole place just went absolutely mental. I just thought they were all having some sort of hot flash moment as a mass event. I couldn't work out what was going on uh, until I realised, obviously, they don't play this very often live. I, I knew Supper's Ready. I knew of it. I didn't know it well. didn't know the rest of the album. And I put it on and I found it utterly impenetrable for the, I mean, you say, you say six tracks. I say 12 because, because obviously Supper's Ready is seven, uh, bolted together and not very elegantly, I might say. But I have to say, I absolutely love this album. It has just blown my mind. I don't, I don't profess to understand it. At all, I kind of think I've got a little bit of an insight into some of it. What what gets me about this this particular album is you can hear Genesis in all of their incarnations, right the way down to you know calling all stations and and um, you know and coming back a bit. Invisible Touch, you can certainly hear Wind and Wuthering in it. You, I think you can hear the Genesis Excuse the Pun of Lamb on it as well, mm-hmm. and particularly in Supper's Ready. So yeah, I've absolutely adored it. I I, I am struggling very hard to find a song that goes below eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to join the club. Don't, I mean, don't apologise for not understanding it. I'm, I, don't, I don't understand it, but um, all, all I know is I love it. And um, if we understood it and therefore regarded ourselves as kind of proper Genesis fans, we'd be here for six hours and the show <laughs> is just going to be shit, isn't it? So um, so let's, let's, let's not understand it and just have fun listening to it. Good idea. Good idea. <laughs> Richard, how do, you get, how do you get on with it? Because of various other commitments we've had a little longer with uh, these three albums than we usually have and i'm glad of that because i don't think trying to get to grips with something like foxtrot as well as two other albums in a, in a week would would have, would have done it justice I, I do sense this is an album where it all really gelled and when we when we reviewed nursery Grime, there's some stuff on there that really absolutely worked for me it's some other stuff that i was you know just felt it missed a bit but this is this i see what you mean about this being their high watermark because everything has just come together everything works there's an unbelievable balance in uh in, in everything they're doing yeah it, it it took a while and it was a good album to to go into and and you know and then come back to i do remember i mean, our friend of mine was was a massive, massive, massive Genesis fan. So I I did hear this album a number of, of times, and I uh, and back then this is what early eighties, I uh, yeah late seventies, early eighties. I I I, it, I couldn't I couldn't get into it. After the listening these this last couple of weeks, I think I'm starting to get it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm starting to get it. Uh, supper's ready. I will uh, I'll let you know what I think about that in a bit. About Colin's drumming, yeah, he's a superb drummer, and I, and I think his not only obviously his drumming on this album is is technically unbelievably proficient and clever. The range in styles that he's using, from you know soul to jazz uh, to almost like classical uh, mm. styles, is 
is amazing, but where he it's it's actually where he uses them. It 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 just feels his drumming always has a place. It complements what the song is trying to do. Uh, there are times where he's driving everything along. There are times where he's supporting. There are times where it's you know incredibly light. Then others incredibly powerful. Uh, so I think drumming wise, it is a masterclass. It's interesting what you said there about balance and getting the balance right. Because of course they were very often accused of not getting the balance right of getting just so carried away in their creativity that they'd lose all sight of balance and just That's go right. mad. The kitchen, yeah, kitchen the seat kitchen approach. Seat. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even, and even the, the, the best quote I've got from, about this album from Steve Hackett, who called Foxtrot swirly feely, he said, it's an album where you're not entirely certain what you're listening to. And I think that's, yeah, that's coming from the bloke who helped write it. And I just think that's priceless. Um, and if, if they're at that stage, creatively that stage, I just, I just think it's brilliant. He said that they were trying to do what the Beatles did with Sergeant Pepper, that sort of thing, you know. And he said it was easy for them to take the risk, Genesis, because they had fewer fans to lose than the Beatles. So, well, also, yeah, but also the Beatles had already done it, hadn't they? They'd already kind of played with fire and got away with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but the Beatles had gone, and it was down to the likes of Genesis and King Crimson and Pink Floyd, and to take those risks. And um, you know, as you know, I, I think they actually nailed it. Well, it was Tony Banks, wasn't it, who said that, that this was the album where they realised they could do just about anything. The only problem was it took the rest of the world, he said rather immodestly, it took the rest of the world two years to catch up. Um, and and I just thought, oh, wanker. But actually, do you know what? He's right, isn't he? He's, he's absolutely right. And when yeah, you listen to it forensically, you yeah. can hear that they are so far ahead of anything else at that point. In that kind of little space that they occupied, yeah, they were miles ahead. But it was also those kind of quotes from people like Banks that got them absolutely hated by the press, wasn't yeah. it? Because they were so yeah, bloody yeah, yeah. withering about other. They were so full of self confidence that, that, that you know, and and obviously middle class lovers. The press absolutely slaughtered them on a regular yeah. on a regular basis. They were so confident they just spoke their minds, you know. Um, anyway, that's in the past. For now, I suggest we have a little listen to the first four tracks. On this um, on this album, uh, Watcher of the Skies, Timetable, Get Em Out by Friday, Can Utility, and the Coastliners, and uh, we'll have a little chat about all four. Straight in with a Mellotron, once of King Crimson, but walking by Banks for use on Nursery Rhyme, a new series again, and it's the kind of atmospheric intro um, into this classic, big, brooding, winding, wending, wobbling Genesis album opener. It's just this is the first of our three epics. Um, and it's it's just it's just a thing of beauty. I mean, it's it's hard to describe. Just goes here, there, anyway. It's all images, all tapestries, staccato rhythms, inspirations. Um, lyrically, Arthur C. Clarke apparently sci-fi epic. Um, it's, it's it's more than just a sci-fi tale. Um, a live favourite. You can imagine Gabriel had all sorts of costumes for this, and with wings and capes and space masks. Utterly, utterly surreal. And Colin's role in this is complex. It's time signature changes all over the place, which I'll talk more about. Um, but he pulls it all together. Every crash, hit, and tap counts with this man. I've always said, just a just a stunning opener. It's me done. There is a bit of um, I, when it first started. I, I was getting a lot of Herbert Long in Return of the Pink Panther. Okay, when he's when he's in the Gothic castle playing as the Mad Inspector, you know, Mad um, Dreyfus playing the organ. But um, yeah. 
we quickly lose that and we get quite a lot of majesty in this, don't we? It's, it's such a, a statement of intent, this song. It just kind of comes out of the traps at you and it sets a bar so high you think they can't possibly keep, keep up with it. And yet they do, you know, for the rest of the album, they absolutely nail every single moment. Yeah, I mean, you've already talked about it, really. There's a lovely shuffle in the middle of this song as well, which is just completely sort of contradictory to everything else that's going on around it. And I'll say this now, it it goes for every single track and every part of every single track. It's rare to get an album where the lyrics actually really matter to the way you feel about the music because it's an absolute counterpoint. There are moments in across the album where the music kind of is very uplifting and light and airy, but the message behind it is so dark. Yeah. And, and you kind of get that contrast. And that, that really sets the mood, your mood, the listener's mood for the entire album. And it's only when you sit down and you listen to it properly and you concentrate on it. This is not a put it on in the background and do some movie. This is, you know, <laughs> this is, this is real stuff that you have to you have to make time for it and watch of the skies just think it's absolutely majestic i've called it a kind of orchestral melancholy which seems to be sort of yeah that's runs yeah. runs through the album doesn't it yeah uh, they've hardly had any time to write any of his stuff mm-hmm. rehearsals are scarce you know because they, they, they were still in in italy touring nursery crime in the august and this came out in when the october um and yet somehow i mean a lot of this stuff was pre-written i know that the bank says that a couple of things he'd written back at university but to, to get it all together, and it's why you'll come to Supper's Ready later, you know, how well did they actually gel it all together? Because, um, yeah, but because um, there's some lumpy old segues in there, aren't there, as we move on. But incredible how they managed to get all this stuff written down in such a short period of time. Anyway, I digress. Watch your disguise. Yeah, time signature. For, well, they say it's 6-4. I think it's more like 12-8. I'm sure you two agree. Uh, uh, is, that, is that a drummer joke? It's double six four, isn't it? <laughs> it's faster, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm wary of I'm wary of laughing in case you're being serious. That's all I'm saying. Well, when I'm uh, speaking, you know that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. So yeah. that's all. It's it's one faster, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but is it? Shit. Now is he right? <laughs> but it goes up to eleven. <laughs> I, I think yeah. Drumming's amazing. The, the 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 lifts, the falls, the quiet, the loud, um, but still keeping that rhythm all the way through. It, it's what it, whichever instrument is leading, really clever. The organ glues everything together. You got these lovely conversational bits between the instruments. Incredibly uplifting. It's brilliant drumming. It's not just Gabriel's lyrics, but his use of the English language is just you know. For though your ship be sturdy, no mercy has the sea. It's, it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just brilliant. Yeah, pretentious toss. He's a genius. Yeah, wonderful opener. Brilliant. It is. It is. And of course, it, um, it segues in. It doesn't segue. It goes into track two, which is Gabriel's biography called um, Timetable. Um, one of the most overlooked from the Gabriel era parts of the band's history. And I'm not surprised because, I mean, how can it, how can it be anything other than overlooked in, amidst the company it's keeping? It's a lovely, sweet, tame, romantic number displaying their musicality, but 
Um, yeah, lyrics again a bit farty or brilliant, depending on whether you're listening to me or Richard. It's just a counterpoint, really. After Watcher, it's very forgettable. Uh, do you know what? I, I think it's better than that. I do okay. think it's better than that. I mean, the the title of it plays havoc with the Americans because uh, they don't understand what timetable is. Um, <laughs> but it's got um, this gorgeous, these gorgeous piano runs going through it, which are just the use of the instrumentation in, in it, I think, is just so delicate. It just ends up being this sort of beautifully melodic, airy piece of work. I think if this was on any other album, on its own merit, it would be one of the better songs mm. or best songs on an album. I just think it just is unfortunate. It happens to be on this album. It is an oasis amongst the madness. Yes. We could talk about order of, of tracks and all of that, but I think yeah, I think it's got its place. I mean, pleasant is a, is a horrible understatement. It, it's just really, really nice. It's very sweet. But, again, it's a really dark subject, isn't it? Because it's talking about how, I think... It's talking about how people, how generations just repeat the mistakes of the past and that we're forever doomed to do that. So, you know, it talks about the sort of the grandeur of, you know, the way in which um, a race considers itself to be the best and that, that all crumbles under, you know, sort of the, the, the weight of reality. And then future generations have the same view and we just keep doing the same thing. I think it's, it's a really melancholy song. And a really good example of where it, that lightness actually gives you a false sense of hope and uplift against the lyrics that are relentlessly bleak. Uh, and then we go into Get Em Out by Friday, which is um, epic number two. Kind of wonderful. This is more them doing their sort of one of those mini operas that they like to do. Harold the Barrel, that we put longer bells on. Battle of Epping Forest, um, which we'll talk about when we do um, Selling England by the Pound. Features loads of different characters, um, and ostensibly is a story of rent eviction, <clears throat> based apparently on a problem that Gabriel actually had um, with a landlord. Whether it was in Harlow, Newtown, or not, I don't know, but um, that seems to be the scene of this. Being Genesis, of course, beyond the mirth and the fun of a very humorous song, as a serious commentary on social mobility, corporate greed. Genesis would never leave that unsaid, untouched. Um, so it's another phenomenal piece of storytelling to music, endlessly interesting. And I actually find myself, and I always have done, and I'm always embarrassed to say it, I actually find myself getting quite teary in this for Mrs. Barrow. It's such a tenderly written song and so gentle. I actually feel for the poor lady who's about to get evicted. Um, and I hate John Pebble of Sticks Enterprises, and he didn't deserve a knighthood or whatever he got. Um, <laughs> It is a it is genius. It is genius. And and yet, Steve, you thought the bat out of hell was too handwrapped. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. <laughs> Peter Gabriel doing about twenty four different characters yeah. with a bit of help from Phil Collins, who's kind of got the cheeky chappy role as always. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I think this is fantastic. It's very very clever. The you know that sort of social commentary that Gabriel has made a trademark of all of his music through the years, through all of the incarnations and iterations, through his solo career with the kind of the uh, the first three albums that he did, and then mm. on to the world music that he's kind mm. of become better known for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all about equality and inequality, isn't it? And, um, and this is another one. I think it's really clever. For me, it's it's just maybe, well, no, 
I was going to say it's a little bit too busy. It's it's not because it's meant to be, yes. and the music perfectly sort of captures that frenetic, frantic scrabble to for, to either save your home or to you know to get somebody else. So and and yeah, get them out by Friday. It's no coincidence that the chorus is is against probably the fastest part of the part of the track. It's, mm. it's all about a race against time to get them. Yeah. Out. Clever, so, brilliantly yeah, clever. I mean, it's really, yeah, really yeah. clever. So I yeah. absolutely love it. And when I criticise it, it's minor yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. With Gabriel's vocal performance, it's all too easy to follow the lyrics and follow the story. What I'd encourage anybody out there listening to do is listen to this track and and try and forget the words. Try and forget what you're hearing in the lyrics and go underneath to the music because... The, there is so much going on on there. Amazing bass work from Rutherford, the drums from Collins, the time changes, the tempo changes. It would actually have worked as an instrumental. There is yeah. so much going on under there. So, I mean, I yeah, Harold the Barrel, I couldn't get on with. I remember really that. So I remember much. that. Yeah, uh, this this lyric-wise, yeah, I've enjoyed. But mm. actually, once I got underneath that and just heard the music they put underneath it, I thought, wow. Yeah, God, it's clever. they were too clever by half, aren't they? Um, anyway, it's it's a great track, and it and and that precedes the mini epic. We have three biggins and and this this kind of five is it five and a half minutes? I can't remember. Um, can Nearly utility? Six. Yeah, can utility and the coastline that's loosely based on King Canute, I think about idolatry and hero worship. I think it's against a stunner. It absolutely is to me. It's modelled around this unbelievably beautiful hypnotic middle section with all the instruments, including Gabriel's voice, just drifting in and around Hackett's simple guitar line and Colin's towering drum lines, synths everywhere. But the middle section of this is just one of those moments. I mean, Tony Banks will talk later about when he thought there was a part of Supper's Ready. He thought, you know what, we've absolutely nailed it. Um, and I think in the middle of this, um, they nail it. I mean, really back into classic Genesis by the time they get to the end of it. I mean, not that it's got a, a low score, but this probably out of the four on side one uh, is is the lowest for me. Track of the album. <laughs> um, I just find this utterly euphoric. I really do. I mean, obviously it's very clever lyrically, but you kind of expect that now, don't you? From from Genesis, it's a, a retelling of the King Canute myth or legend, or legend, but it's told in two parts, isn't it? So the coastliners are sycophants, I think, and part of the song is about this kind of reputation that Canute had for being able to master the the sea and the elements and trying to stop the tide was him trying to prove that actually no man controls anything and that you know, humility is kind of the way forward. I just think lyrically it's really clever, but it's just a euphoric, beautiful song. And I can't talk about time changes because I don't understand them. They just mess with my head. But it's fantastic. I just think it's utterly fantastic. And, it, you know, for me, it's it's this and watch of the skies, but this shape just. It's that that's that middle section where the, when Gabriel stops singing, you can you can hear the sea rolling in and rolling out. If if that's you know the meta, I might be really overcomplicated now, but it just feels like you know it's telling that kind of tale. Yeah, Richard, I think you're absolutely right. By the time they get to the end of it, this is if you want an absolute kind of example of what Genesis were, this is it. This song, I think, the end of this song is. That is Genesis. That is the definition of Genesis. Well, 
many would argue that the de- definition of Genesis is yet to come. So let's have a little yes. listen to the two tracks on side two, which you can argue in one track. Indeed, Steve Hackett has argued it, that fact that Horizons is indeed the prelude to Suppers Ready. So Horizons is very nice, but it is what it is. It's, it's an instrumental. It's a minute and a half of Steve Hackett playing with his car, and he plays it very nicely. Thank you very much. But... As he says, it, it, it's merely an hors d'oeuvre for Supper's Ready, which is this, well, I mean, it, the Everest in the mountain range of prog epics, isn't it? I mean, nearly 23 minutes long, um, written in seven parts, but some of the segues are a little bit blurred. <laughs> and to be honest, it's that layered that seven is the absolute minimum number of movements there are in this masterpiece, or maximum, who knows? Because it's, it's just, it plays with your head trying to count them. Because a lot of it was thrown together. There's a middle section, which wasn't even part of it originally. And they just, they just thought, you know, that'll add some pace. Let's bang it in. Um, so that, that's kind of where we are. But yeah, listen, it's, it's, an, it's incredible by any measure. There's no real conceptual angle to it, um, I don't think. Although Gabriel talked about a journey, Pilgrim's Progress, perhaps. Is it biblical because it ends with the New Jerusalem? Is that a journey? Or is it just all drugs? I don't know. Maybe it's all drugs. He's, he, and Gabriel's still apparently very fond of it. And he's not known for his praise of, uh, of some of Genesis's earlier stuff. And you know, how could you not be fond of this? To me, it's just the yardstick by which all prog rock epics have to be measured. Um, the sheer fucking breadth of this thing. You know, it, just, it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Not just the breadth of it, the sheer cheek of it. I mean, they had no right to do it, did they? <laughs> no. Right, supper's ready. I really tried all those years ago, uh, and a bit like Mark talked to earlier in his opening remarks yeah i found supper's ready impenetrable and and i tried it a few times just couldn't click it wouldn't click i could understand i suppose what the fuss was about but i wasn't i just couldn't get fussed now it's changed the, the 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 time i've spent with this over the last couple of weeks the way we go about this podcast has made me listen to this in a very different way yes these movements have been glued together from you know, different times when they were written um, and hell knows how they arranged this but it works uh, it, it, it absolutely works and I, I urge anybody out there who's still not quite got it to to really focus on it and give it give it some mm. time because it, it it will reward you and very clever that they bring melodies and themes back uh, so there, there is a there is a backbone to this. Uh, I've criticised I've criticised tracks on on nursery crime that I felt they were they were put together and just it didn't quite work. We've said that a lot before about groups like Yes doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. This just works, and yeah, uh, what an absolutely unique piece of music. The other thing I'd say probably is the mood in your head that you need to get into listening to these yeah. things. Don't, don't try and compare Supper's Ready to anything else that you've ever listened to b- before or since because you, you will fail and it, and, and it will fail. Listen to Supper's Ready as a piece of classical music. Yeah. And that's when it starts to click. I think the thing that's really surprised me about on this, kind of listening to this for the podcast is, I should hate this. <laughs> you would have done. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have done. You know, a year ago, fifteen months ago, I probably, yeah, maybe I would. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think that I would have got to it with. I mean, as you say, which we've had a couple of weeks with this one, and one week, and I think that's a massive, but yeah, awful. Because I think I'd still be struggling. Oh, it's a week long. 
Richard, I'd, I'd like to talk a specific with you, if I may, because I think this this piece peaks when it comes out of Willow Farm, which is section five. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of racy. It's a racier section, um, which they absolutely just lobbed in the middle for that very purpose, just to just to you know g- give it some strength. And it and it comes out via a flute and a guitar duet into a set into um, a vignette called Apocalypse in Nine Eight. <laughs> now. I don't even know what part of that duet plays, whether it's part of Willow Farm or the Apocalypse, but the, what the fuck is 9-8 time? The, the organ solo from Banks, apparently, is played in 4-4 four, four and 7-8 time signatures against the 9-8 rhythm section. And yes, I've read that because I don't get it. But all I know is it's, <laughs> all I know is it is stunning. That timekeeping in that piece is yeah. astonishing. Listen, I'm going to try and describe 9-8 to Steve and Mark without <laughs> let, making them fall asleep. Wish me luck. <laughs> Jesus Right, nine eight crotchet beats. That speed, the eight is that speed, right? Okay, yeah. Then, 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 then you count how many of them, and then that's the nine. So, basically, what they're doing, um, I've read, is essentially it's they're they're putting two 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 beats, then three beats, and then four beats. So it's one two, four, one, two, two three, one two three four, one two, one two three, one two three four, one two, oh, one two right. three. So the the two and the three and the four add up to nine. Yeah. So that's essentially the that that's the time signature. That's what they're playing. All of that stuff over. So one two, one two three, one two three four, one two, one two three, one two three four, one two, one two three, one two three four. That for that entire thing. And, and and then essentially they're riffing over it. So yeah. Collins is keeping the beat. If you if you watch them play this live, you can see Mike Rutherford yeah. just got his eyes absolutely fixed okay. on Phil Collins because Phil Collins is, despite all of his playing around and symbols yeah, yeah. and here and there and whatever else, he is keeping that 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 one two one two three one two three four. Count that next time you listen to it, okay. and the fills will actually make some sense. It sounds random. That will give it some structure. But that's nine eight nine nine beats. Nine beats at a time. Yeah, then there what's known as a polyrhythm. They've, 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 they've fallen asleep now, listeners. Oh, my God. I'm opening uh, the can so, of worms uh, here, mate. <laughs> so a polyrhythm is when you, where you lay one time signature on top of another. So you've got this 9-8 bed, and that's where Banks is playing his, his a different time signature, which is why he goes in and out of phase with what's underneath. I wouldn't even know my name after there we go. that. That's unbelievable. Although he would never he, – he has – Stop short of actually publicly declaring it. Rutherford, I think, has intimated that he came up with that rule. Well, it comes it comes out of into a sort of stunning Banks organ solo um, with Collins for two or three minutes. I think you're listening to this almost hypnotic duet between Banks and Collins. It's utterly wondrous. And Banks says it's um, he's gone on record as saying that's the half minute or so that Genesis were probably at their peak. Which is, you know, that's quite a statement. And he actually wrote, and he wrote the last section. They called it the six 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 bit. He didn't write it with Gabriel in mind, and then Gabriel just wrote these lyrics over the top. And by the end, of course, because of course this thing's twenty three minutes long, they often had to change the key that Gabriel was singing in because he was so fucked by the mm-hmm. end. You know, just he couldn't keep up with the high bit. But that bit that Banks wrote without Gabriel in mind, he got righteously fucked off. Gabriel started singing. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Before, kind of, before Gabriel had kind of finished, and then he was forced to go. Yeah, that kind of that works. Kind of works. Yeah. <laughs> I love his row. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Apparently, there's a lot of sulking going on in these sessions. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that explains the tone of the album. <laughs> yeah. 
Because um, Gabriel insisted on writing all of the lyrics alone. Yeah, there was no there was no uh, contribution from anybody else. That was the one thing he didn't allow. So yeah. that's an extraordinary work. It's an odyssey, an absolute odyssey. And I, I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it anyway, you two, because it's um, you know I think it's stunning. Do you do house highs and lows? Uh, I think no, no surprises. I think I've already said during the, the conversation. Um, a very high, very high low score for me would be get them out by Friday, and for me, pick of it was. Can we see in the coastline? Just fantastic, majestic song. Yeah, well, if we're marking it, I think Horizons will get my lowest mark. It's perfectly pleasant, nice interlude. It's a you know, good piece of guitar music. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but yeah, supper's ready. Don't doubt yourself. Just don't <laughs> doubt yourself. Because I, 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 I finally, finally get it. <laughs> This isn't a podcast for Genesis lovers because you know, people are looking down as us heathens. I hope we've given non-Genesis fans an idea that it is well worth you giving this album some time. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, you have to give it time, certainly. And I'm with you, Richard. Uh, Horizon's the low, again, not because I don't like it. Um, and Supper's Ready, I've given a couple of tens. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just think Supper's Ready is the measure by which all great classics should be judged so uh, to me that's a maximum marker there you go that's um genesis foxtrot first um album of this drummers episode that we're doing for episode whatever number it is and we move on six years to 1978 no <laughs> um and a band we all know and love but not necessarily an album that uh, everyone knows and loves mark Opening album sleeve notes. Okay, boys, reset your heads. Okay, we've we've moved on from Genesis now, and um, and we're we're moving into territory that, in the context of Foxtrot, might seem utterly frivolous. But yes, we are talking now about well, yesterday and today, and just just for the record, it is credited as an album by Yesterday and Today. We will, for the rest of this conversation, refer to that band as Wine Tea, only for shorthand purposes. But I don't want purists writing in their droves going, it was yesterday and today who recorded that. They weren't Wine Tea at that point. No, they weren't. So, yes, this is Wine Tea uh, and Struck Down, the second album. Um, yeah, released in 1978. It's uh, album two of, well, 12, 10 of which qualify for the podcast. So we've got another, I think, six or seven to go uh, before we're done here released in june 78 uh, on the london our uh, on the london record label uh, a label that went bust before the record even came out that just torpedoed y&t who were on a fairly stratospheric upward trajectory at the time so um it just kind of rocked their world and not in a good way when london went under and it would be a little bit of time before they would manage to secure another record deal, this time with A&M, and they would release Earthshaker, um, which rightfully should have set them on the path to stadium status. Didn't for all sorts of reasons. It was produced by a gentleman called Jimmy Robinson. Now, Jimmy Robinson had got a very long and very prestigious track record uh, as an engineer, primarily, and he'd worked with, I mean, all manner of megastars bowie um he worked with zeppelin he had worked with rolling stones he had worked 
with all sorts of people. I mean, the list is is utterly endless. You go look him up on on Wikipedia, and you'll see the number of people that he is associated with in some way, shape, or form. So he was asked by the record company through another uh, agency to produce YMT's second album. First one had been the self-titled debut in '76, and you know. This was a band that were hot, um, certainly hot in the Bay Area, and were becoming hot all over the country. Um, particularly, they'd, they'd opened for Queen in uh, New York a couple of times, and they were big news. And so they got this kind of kick-ass producer to come in and uh, produce their album. Now, Jimmy Robinson was very talented in all sorts of ways, but he had an exceptional PCP habit. Uh, which meant he liked to experiment with stuff and not just drugs. What he decided to do was experiment with the band's sound. So what you get here, and we'll talk about the production, I'm sure, because it's the one thing that lets this album down, I think. There's a lot of flange and phaser and God knows what else on this album. It just, it just muddies the production beyond, beyond all description. Actually, it's very hard to describe just how much that gets in the way of everything. Occasionally, just occasionally, it absolutely works. But it's like Jimmy found the kind of the phases, uh, phases, and he found the flange, and he went, oh, "This is just absolutely monumental stuff. We're just going to put this on the whole of the album." So there was no filter. So what we ended up with um, is an album that is just it's just a wash with stuff, clutter, I would say. So this was recorded at the record plant in Sausalito and mastered at the record plant in Los Angeles. The album that came afterwards, as I said, was Earthshaker, and we'll get to that at some point reasonably soon, I'm sure. And then we can talk about, you know, the album that you know should have made them but didn't. This is the classic Yesterday and Today YT lineup. Dave Monichetti on vocals and lead guitar, Joey Alves on rhythm guitar, Phil Kenamore on bass and the subject of this episode, well, Leonard Hayes on drums. Now, as Steve has already alluded to, Steve and I don't know what the album's talking about when it comes to drummers. All I know is that more than any other album that I think I've listened to, well, no, more than most other albums that I've listened to in my life, this is the one where I actually, the drums actually kind of break through and you hear them and you hear the kind of the, the way in which they drive the album forward so this is an album where i kind of appreciate the drums in a way that i don't understand them necessarily but i appreciate them in a way that i didn't that i don't necessarily appreciate them on other albums and um, this did nothing chart wise did nothing sales wise i don't think there are eight tracks on it side one struck down the type of track Pleasure in My Heart, Road and Nasty Sadie, Turn It Over, and you've got Dreams of Egypt, trying to show you I'm Lost and Stargazer. What's right for me? I'm trying to 
like I said, it's one of my all-time favourite YMT albums. I would probably put it up there, either second to Earthshaker or third after Black Tiger. It depends on my mood, I think, but it's certainly, you know, for me, this is a, an absolutely massive album. And I would suggest that without this one, you wouldn't have got Earthshaker. I think this is an, an absolutely critical staging post for YMT in their journey through the sort of 70s into the 80s and beyond. As Steve said, it's not one that lots of people would be familiar with. I think there are lots of non-sort of YMT fans who will be aware of Earthshaker and aware of Mean Street and probably aware of Black Tiger. This probably falls on the periphery of the radar, um, if not off it for a lot of people. So I'm really keen to know what you two thought, because I've played odd tracks to, I mean, Steve, you might have it, I don't know, but I know I've played odd tracks to you two, but I've never played it in full. Well, I do have it, and it's the least played of the first six Y&T Yesterday and Today albums that I have, which kind of probably tells you where I am with it. Don't dislike it, far from it. Incidentally, I feel guiltily attached to the production. <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah, so do I. I find it a little bit charming yeah. in, in its sort of rustic way. Um, I don't mind that at all. Yeah, I mean, the best was definitely yet to come, I did, uh, wasn't it, surely? Um, I mean, it's it's an oddity. It's, and, and the production kind of creates that sense of, of oddity. And it's a curious piece. Well, I don't think it's exceptional in musical terms by like any stretch, but I find it so enjoyable, utterly endearing. Actually, still, and I've played it a hell of a lot, obviously, over the years, I still find it quite challenging in bits. You know, it's an interesting album. And yes, it's a stepping stone in the Y&T story. And therefore, you know, for, for fans like us, it's, it's a massive deal. And I still love listening to it from time to time. But it is jumbled. And I wonder if they were a band. Oh, you'd know this more than me, Mark, because you've seen videos and interviews and all sorts of things. But I wonder if they were, you know, I know they were already getting quite experienced when they're getting a reputation live, certainly in their own backyard. Pr- probably sensed before London went bust that they did have a future. But I wonder if they still didn't quite know what they were and um, what they wanted to be. Because, you know, thank the Lord, they figured it out pretty quickly, given what the next album was, you know, this hard rock monolith. Um, in Earthshaker, but I get an awful lot of different kind of vibes and feels and styles um, in this album. But this is, to me, this is almost the odd one out in the catalogue. It doesn't have an awful lot in common with Yesterday and Today, I don't think, no, and it's got even no, less in common with Earthshaker. So in, in, in that respect, it's quite an unusual piece of work. I don't think unusual is a bad word. Um, no, I, I, no. I really like it. I really, really like it. But it's the least played of the first six. It is a really interesting staging post in their development. I mean, what what I hear in this album, it, I I'd have thought some of their influences. So I, I think of of their album, it's the most varied. Uh, there's a whole load of different styles in in here, and whether they were they were just letting themselves, you know, go and flow, uh, or they were trying some some new things out, and perhaps it it did allow them then to work out what was the Y and T sound and template that then you know they really you know nailed on earth shake you and then the rest is is history i think there are some really really good tracks on this it's yeah, it's a little bit up and down and no no absolute howlers really really enjoyed it yeah i'm with steve i think on the production it's endearing <laughs> isn't it <laughs> well we'll talk about the, the influence of it as, as, as we go through there's lo- loads of energy i like the variation i mean it was was it their their difficult second album but and then finally Leonard Hayes, yeah. I mean, I think again, this is a wonderful example of just what that man can do. 
when you've got someone like that behind the kit, you're always going to enjoy playing, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. All right. So track one struck down the title track. Yeah, those phases and flanges, they're all the rage on this album, and you get them right from the start. But this is a, a very, very heavy, I mean, unusually heavy for the time, even given what else is going on in 78. This is a heavy track. You know, th- those drums just kind of, they're, they're all there. They're doing everything they should do. They're, there's loads of space in it. They're only doing what's necessary, but they absolutely drive this track forward. Richard, talk about his right foot or his left foot. I don't know which one. Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so he he holds the entire band on the on this uh, very quick uh, sort of fluttered bass drum, uh, which I think is lovely. I've, I've never heard it this be- like this before for a whole song. I mean, he's just wait, wait for it, wait for <laughs> it. Here we go again. Yeah. It's just brilliant, and I love the solo. Yeah, they're a constant thread, aren't they, through this whole album? It's quite proggy, isn't it? A little bit free metal almost. It's quite, yeah. it, it's, it's, um, to that end, it's quite a surprising opener because it's, it's almost like a jam, you know. It's, um, but the, as soon as that telltale, recognizable Menachetti vibrato kicks in, it's just off in a direction we know and love, isn't it? It's, it, I think it's a great song. I can hear Purple in here. I can hear Hawkwind. I can hear plenty of early 70s influences. And then, of course, yeah. Screaming guitar, so that brings it right up to date and into the future. One more thing to say about Hayes' drumming. Just listen to Struck Down and see what a fella can do with one foot on the bass drum. And when you've done that, you can listen to Pleasure in My Heart, which is track two. What I really like about this album, and why don't he do it a lot, you think it's going to be really formulaic. You think it's going to be verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, verse, chorus, out. And it's not. They they hold the chorus. So you get a couple of verses before you get to the chorus. And Pleasure in My Heart, I, I just think this is just genius because it, it, it's a, almost like a reggae um, beat to it, a reggae feel to it. And then it goes into this just gorgeous chorus that is completely atypical compared to everything that's gone before. I absolutely love this song. I think it's just perfectly balanced and perfectly constructed. Um, <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, no, because it's my weakest song on the album. And no, it's not a bad track, don't get me wrong. It's just kind of, you know, rock played underneath a disco ball. And I'm yeah, a little bit a little bit funky, a little bit funky. <laughs> Although when we talk funky, we've still got the third album to come yet, so we'll, yes. we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> come back to the F word. Um, Phil Kenimore's bass playing. I mean, you know, let's let's talk about a man who dances all over the place. Brilliant. But just when you're starting to cringe at the backing vocals, um, which I do, um, Menachetti goes off on one with the guitar again and, and, and they rock out, but they just never quite lose that funkiness. Oh, I've always had this shit with funk. I get what you're hearing. Mark, I get what you're hearing. I absolutely do. Um, and it's just probably the reason why you know, it's just not quite up there for me. So, Richard, is, is it a case of get the funk out? Steve's just plainly wrong, isn't he? I, well, I, I think he needs his ears syringed. This is one of the best tracks on the album. Yeah, it's it's just fantastic. It's got re- it's not just funky. It's got a real soul. Yeah, about it. I love the middle, the main riff, that heavier middle section, and then how it drops back in towards the end. Uh, lovely variation on the drumming. 
Um, a bit of cowbell to the end. Uh, no yeah. entry on ultimatecowbell.com, I'm afraid, though, <laughs> boys, for, for this one. Pace has used the ride symbol to lift it all up. Yeah, lovely, lovely song. So uh, track three is, well, it's another it's another song about being on the road or coming <laughs> yeah. home from the road, isn't it? And, um, and God knows we've got enough of those in heavy metal. But this is the heavy metal track on the album. Oh, this is the one. This. Yeah, I knew you would. It's metal at what, pace. What a bloody surprise. <laughs> Jesus. This is like, fo- like Focus yeah. meets Judas Priest. I fucking love it. If it's, if it's any consolation, Steve, this is the track that I, that I fell in love with the first time I heard I the bet. album. I bet. Um, and it's only over time that others have kind of percolated to the service. I think this is a, I think this is a, a good example of this type of song done well. I'm a hurricane man. I'm a hungry for rock man. This will do me all day long. Yeah, straightforward, like the main riff, good stomper, heavy and fast, but not as good as the previous track. Okay. Now, I don't know whether this person really exists or not, but track four <laughs> is, uh, is about uh, a young lady uh, called Nasty Sadie, uh, who was at all the shows. And if you had one track that you kind of went, this, ladies and gentlemen, is Leonard Hayes, then for me, it's this one. I just think his drumming on this is just out of this world. For what little I know about such things. And the song, the song is sort of um, critically derided actually it's not particularly popular with yeah. with the critics i absolutely love it i think it's got a fantastic shuffle it's a bit cheesy i think Medicaid's vocal gymnastics on it are amazing i'll tell you who the unsung hero of this is as well as joey alves i mean god knows that guy is just so reliable on the back line um on rhythm guitar so yeah nasty sadie if you want to know what leonard hayes can do this one for me richard yeah, yeah, it's drumming's brilliant, man. Yeah, I presume, I presume it's uh, it's Rosie's cousin, is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. It's good fun, but that that's about it for me. Love the drumming, but the rest of the song's fine. No, I like it. Yeah, I like it. If there was a Sadie, and this is the personification of her, then she fucking must have been nasty. Because this <laughs> is, isn't it? This really is. Oh, I love it. It oozes sleaze. Okay, so when you turn the album over, you get a song called Dreams of Egypt and track one, side two, I'm not sure. I think track two, side two would have been better. Track one, side two. This is not an epic. It's not Stargazer, you know, although it, I think it tries to be a bit. I'm not sure this track really knows what it, <laughs> what it's trying to be. It starts off and it's got this sort of very almost... I dread to say it, sort of cashmere feel to it. <laughs> um, and therefore it's, it's kind of a bit ploddy. Um, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I mean, I like it because it's wine tea <laughs> and I love wine tea. So I'm going to forgive. The thing I think about this track is it could have been so much more than it actually becomes because it feels like it's, it's about to go and it never quite does. Do you know, when I put this on a couple of weeks ago, first time for years and it just dawned on me that i didn't understand it then and i still don't get it now but I, I, don't, I don't i don't get what they're doing it's just so all over the place yeah. it's kind of stop start and a bit like struck down in that respect but not as good a tune I, I do think and i don't know and shoot me down in flames but it's a master class from leonard hayes because because it's all over the bloody place yeah, i don't know I'm more genius from menachetti on the guitar again as, as the track goes on but um 
Yeah, it's confused, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't think it's confused at all. That's great. It is very Zeppelin. You know, Hayes doing a bottom. He's he's just carrying that entire song with an amazing uh, bass beat and then just playing around on it. I think that it's up there for me, the contender of song of the album. Um, I yeah. love the changes in mood. I love the changes in pace. I love the stop starts. I think it's a very clever, very clever track. Track two, side two, would be the other song that I think would be vying, from my point of view, uh, for song of the album. Or uh, tried to show you, and this yeah, you couldn't second guess any of this. <laughs> you couldn't second guess any of this. <laughs> on, I Steve. love albums like these. I Go absolutely on. adore albums like these. <laughs> haven't got a fucking clue what's coming next. You two. <laughs> Go on. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, look. Yeah. We know you're Mister Reliable. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come on. Come is on. It- Oh, is dear. it far? Is it fast and loud? Yeah. Oh, I like it. <laughs> That's good enough for me. Yeah. I mean, where nuclear assaults are in our league table, I just don't get at all. Um, yeah. Now this is. Um, it's just not a favourite. I don't know. Um, let's just say that the, the vocal harmonies were definitely improved by the time that they became Y and T, weren't they? That's all I will say. I don't mind. I think the harmonies are great. I just, oh, I don't, they're just—they're just—they're just jarring. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got a lovely melody to it. Go on, go on, Richard. What do you think? Not as good as "Pleasure in My Heart," but it's catchy, it's fun, it's upbeat. Uh, yeah, no, it bounces a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, and uh, I think this is the best that Manichetti sounds on the whole album. Forget the the, the tune, Steve. Just think his yeah, vocal yeah. is amazing. It does. It does bounce a lot. Luckily, it bounces into "I'm Lost." So I'm thinking "I'm Lost" is uh, is a favourite. Steve, is it? You can hear the future here, can't you? I think you this can. Is quite, quite good. You can hear "Hurricane" yeah. right at the start. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And always, you can hear a little bit of "Forever" or something when they strip it back. You know, things yeah. like that. It's um, yeah, definitely "Hurricane." Yeah. yeah, I love this. It's a great song. Well, you can not only hear "Hurricane" and "Forever," you can also hear "Rescue Me." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of that in here. If you want the stepping stone from Struck Down to Earthshaker, this is the track. Yeah. And they are struggling to keep up with Leonard Hayes. Mm. Yes, they are. Yeah. He plays at such a pace. And they really are struggling to keep up with him. <laughs> so we're going to get to the last track of the album. Now, that has uh, divides everybody, YMT <laughs> fans and non-YMT fans alike. I rather suspect it's going to divide three YMT fans on this podcast. Stargazer. Is it better than Stargazer or not as good as Stargazer? <laughs> it's better than Stargazer. Okay. Um, it's a fascinating song, isn't it? Just brilliant. You know, bit of Floyd, bit of Beatles, then suddenly metamorphosed into some demonic thrash metal band. You know, where, how did that happen? And that they drift seamlessly back into a, into Arnold Lane mode again and then go off on one again. And quite punky at the same time. I mean, make of that cocktail what you will. I think it's a crazy yeah. track. And because of that, it's quite schizophrenic, isn't it? It's yeah, not yeah, only yeah. schizophrenic within the track itself. It's quite schizophrenic from the point of view of the other seven songs on the album. It's completely yeah. different. And the quirky production actually embellishes this, I think. Yes, it does. There is a bit of a sort of psychedelic, trippy yeah. feel to this, isn't there, at times? Yeah. Not, no, I can see by the frown on your face, which you're not hugely keen on it. Not as good as the other Stargazer. It's not the my lowest score on the album. 
Um, well, let's find out what the highs and lows really are. Um, Steve? Well, I'm not going to weaken in the face of pressure. So the, the, the low point for me is pleasure in my heart, and, and I stand by that. So, you know, fuck the period. And the high spot for me, I mean, there's quite a few. It's such a good album. But, yeah, I'll go I'm lost. Nasty Sadie is my low and dreams of Egypt gets my high. Okay. It's it's tough. I, I think dreams of Egypt probably gets my low. It's not low. Uh, and, yeah, pleasure in my heart. Every day of the week, 10 out of 10 for me, that, that one. So there you go. Three massive YT fans can't agree pretty much anything about this album. And that says a lot, I suggest. Yeah. So two down, one to go. And we fast forward four years to 1982, bizarre gardening accidents, and Toto, Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, Toto, uh, formed by uh, uh, featured third featured drummer of this episode, Jeff Bocaro. Uh, he was doing a lot of session musicianship uh, with a guy called uh, David Page, and uh, they decided that it would be good if they would have a go at forming their own band. Um, brought in uh, Steve Picaro, Jeff's brother, along with David Hungate, uh, Steve Luther, and eventually Bobby Kimball, and that sort of classic lineup of uh, Toto was formed um, in uh, it was in the late seventies. Uh, we are reviewing on this episode Toto Four. Yes, it's their fourth album. They had a really good first album, um, not so well received second and third albums. Uh, although I'm actually quite fond of Hydra. Second, this is the album that they are most famous for. Uh, the two tracks that they are most famous for, and uh, this all happened in 1982. Uh, it was recorded from June or mid mid 1981 uh, around to, to April 82, then released very very quickly on the Columbia record label. It was uh, recorded in uh, Subset Sound and Record One in Los Angeles. Uh, Hog Manor in uh, Sherman Oaks, California, and even a little bit of it in Abbey Road Studios in London. Uh, Turn Back was the previous album, say Hyde before that, and the Toto original uh, that opened up their, their career. And I've mentioned the, uh, the personnel. Uh, chart-wise, it did pretty well for number four on both sides of the Atlantic. It's got gold in the UK, multi-multi-platinum in, in the US. And there are 10 tracks. Uh, it's, it's the 1980s, so of course there were going to be 10 tracks on an album. Uh, side one, Rosanna, Make Believe, I Won't Hold You Back, Good For You and It's Feeling. Side two, Afraid of Love, Lovers in the Night, We Made It, Waiting For Your Love and Africa. All I want to do when I wake up in the morning is see you Rosanna, Rosanna.
so yeah, Jeff Beccaro, uh, one of my favourite drummers. He was just everywhere as a, as a session musician. I mean, one of the most recorded ever uh, session musicians. I mean, hundreds of albums, thousands of sessions and, uh, and, and tracks. Well, he, he's probably best known for the shuffle, the halftime shuffle uh, on Rosanna, the opener, which we'll talk about in a minute. He's one of those sort of drummers, drummer, if you if uh, you know what I mean. And I just absolutely love his playing. Uh, and of course, yes, we make a lot of uh, fun about, you know, fiction becoming uh, reality um, and uh, the spinal tap joke of uh, bizarre gardening accidents. Um, unfortunately, uh, Bakara died very early, uh, age of uh, 38 in uh, 1992. It's believed it was a, an allergic reaction to uh, to pesticide, but bandmates did say that he sort of had other other you know, underlying health conditions. So, so who knows? Uh, but it's such a shame because I mean, Crumbs he'd created so much music by by then, and uh, he'd have had a load more in him. Yeah, absolutely love his drumming. I love this album, and I'm fascinated to hear what my compatriots think. Opening remarks, Jeff. Shall I? <laughs> um, okay. There are only two reasons why this album sold. Let's let's just kind of be honest about that. that because whether you like the, the rest of the album or you don't like the rest of the album, there is nothing truly remarkable on it apart from Rosanna and Africa. So the two tracks that bookend the album, yeah. that's why it sold as well as it did. Because I think without them, it wouldn't have done. Without those two yeah. massive hit singles, it wouldn't have sold anywhere near. So let, let's put aside the commercial success of the album because we know why that happened. I just think this is quite patchy. I think Jeff Picaro, I mean, thank God for Jeff Picaro and Paige because together they wrote those two songs. I, I'm not qualified to comment on or judge Jeff Picaro as a drummer, as we've now established through this podcast. I'm, I'm a complete ignorance, ignorance when it comes to that stuff. There's lots on this album that I quite like, you know, and I find it quite uplifting and quite a happy album. And there's nothing, well, there is one track on it that I just go, oh my good God, what on earth were you thinking? Um, which happens towards the end. But the rest of it is perfectly all right. But there is that kind of, there's that disconnect between a perfectly all right album, which even in the pantheon of, of AOR is not at the pinnacle. And this massive behemoth of commercial success. And, and yeah, uh, there, there are tracks on it. There are two tracks on it I absolutely love. And funnily enough, you know how we sometimes say that I, I don't ever need to hear X track again. You know, I've heard that a thousand times. I don't need to hear it again. It's fantastic. I don't need to hear it again. I could listen to Rosanna and Africa every day of the week. I think they're brilliant songs. There are, of, of the eight that are left, half of them I really quite like. Half of them I'm not bothered about at all. So it, it's a really I have a really interesting relationship with, with the album. I didn't know it particularly well. <clears throat> I, I knew about four of the tracks before we started listening to it for the podcast. So a lot of it has been new to me. Inevitably, I probably spent more time with Genesis than I spent with Toto um, because you had to. Um, but I have, I've played this album probably 12 times, so I've given it a good old listen. I'm, I probably wouldn't play it all the way through again. I think that's where I got to. Yeah, I think that's that's fair, Steve. Mm, well, this is this is the one I didn't know the three, so I've given this a whole load of attention, and um, I've really tried to 
get under the fingernails of it all. But um, what I like about it is it, it's got that nice kind of cosy, tight-knit, minimalist feel, hasn't it, when you involve 21 musicians, not even including the Martin Ford Orchestra. <laughs> um, so this is big. I mean, man, this is big on a big scale. And um, I, I, it's not a bad album, I have to say that. I, I Generally, loads of really sort of hummable stuff on here, which almost sounds like it's damned with faint praise, but it's not. But one or two songs like Mark and perhaps like you, which I don't know that I can happily never hear again. And boy, is it a slow burner, because I don't like the opener. Let's, I'll, I'll put that out there right now. And three tracks in, and I'm thinking, you know, Nuclear Assault have got a challenger here, um, which <laughs> might need explaining to listeners, but anyway. Now, just go and look at the Hall of Fame. Go and look at the Hall of Fame. I'm not comparing styles, trust me. In fact, very much trust me, because because Nuclear Assault do not do Cool in the Gang in the same way that Toto do. Um, <laughs> so it's very nice. It is very nice. And, and again, that sounds like it's an insult. It's not meant to be. It's just a wee bit too much kind of soul funk disco. I read a lovely quote from a reviewer, and I wish I'd thought of it. Um, and he said, and I quote, I'm always worried that Toto conversations are mostly had by musicians with utmost competence and zero risk factor, no real edge. Their idea of taste is what's in their mouth. And that, to me, is it. No real edge. That's where I am with this. I'm definitely echoing that. There's two or three tracks on here that I just love to bits. And one, we're talking about guilty pleasures. I mean, it's, it's the final track from the album. It's Africa. I, it, I shouldn't love it as much as I do. And I still do. And I still do. And I just love it to bits. So it's a really interesting mix. And I've, been, and I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. And there's some real hits and real misses. And there's a middle section. There's a bread basket in this that's brilliant. And they just kind of nail it for three or four tracks. And I just kind of wish they could just, just get rid of some of the shit. I, I, I think that's a really <laughs> fair reflection. It, it is so varied. Obviously, they've, they've thought about all the different musical styles that they played. You know, they didn't tour this album straight after it was released because most of them went across to record Michael Jackson's Thriller. Supergora wrote Human Nature. Lukather, Steve Lukather, played bass and rhythm guitar in Beat It. So Beat It, everyone knows um, uh, you know, Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen's guitar solo. Well, actually, just as well known is that, is that rhythm guitar yeah. of Beat It. That is Lukather. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Steve Beccaro played synth and Jeff Beccaro played drums. So essentially, you've got Toto with Van Halen. Is 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 beating? Can I just say before before we move on, I, I don't think that going and playing on Thriller is necessarily a claim to fame for anybody. I think it'd be easy to list the musicians <laughs> who didn't play. The there were forty nine of them. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Right. Side one starts with Rosanna, the first single off of the album, and that famous uh, Rosanna shuffle, which is impossible to play. Trust me. Uh, even slowed down. Um, Go strokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, I mean, and I, I, I'm fascinated to to, hit, to see why Steve doesn't get this. Um, yeah, that's I'm, my big question. I'm, I'm with Mark. <laughs> I'm with Mark about the bookends on this album. Uh, two absolute stunners. I, I think we've, uh, along with tracks like Supper's Ready, we've got a couple of just unique tracks that aren't like anything else anybody has ever recorded. Uh, Africa's one of them, and I, and I, and I think R- Rosanna is. I love the you know, shared vocal duties on it, Lucas yeah, and, uh, and and Kimball. Um, the keyboard solo, the jam at the end, and then, of course this, this half-time shuffle. I mean, it's an absolutely unique track. I think it's wonderful. Mm. Mark, I think you agree. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I absolutely do. I think, yeah, it's it's 
instantly hummable, instantly recognisable. There's you know, it's just one of those all time classic songs. And yeah, I I could listen to this every day. I just think it's just absolutely fantastic. So why don't you like it? No, 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 no. I, I, in comparison to Africa, I think Africa is a gigantic track, and I don't think the same of Rosanna. Um, I, I, I agree, it's entirely hummable, um, but so is Radar Love, and I don't particularly <laughs> like that. And, and, I, can't, and I, say, I can't just sit here and say it's been overplayed, which of course it has, because yeah, so is Africa. But also, just when you've kind of tolerated it, or I've tolerated it, and they throw in that jazzy ending. <laughs> you know jazz and metal don't mix, or rarely. MC5 can put it off, but Toto, no. Um, yeah, and they kept it in for the album. Um, Karik just kept playing. And then yeah. they, they, they just went along with it and they decided they'd, they'd stick it in rather than fade it out. So it wasn't um, in the single? No. No, no ah, okay. the single was he- he- heavily edited. Yeah. Oh, but of course it's five and a half minutes long, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think what I don't quite understand is, is how did they how did they get two songs that were so fundamentally different to anything else that, well, that I haven't heard all of their catalogue, but it feels like these are two songs, Africa and Rosanna, that they're not like anything else that they ever did. Mm. Whereas the other eight, yes, they're different styles, but they are closely related, I think, mm. musically. Yeah, I agree. I mean, let's talk about side one generally. So you've got you know, Rosanna, this classic to start, then then you go into you know, Make Believe, which is quite soulful, isn't it? Um, and for, for me, it's a... This is a, you know, it, it curves downwards and back up again for me, yeah. side one. So Make yeah. Believe, not as good. I Won't Hold You Back, fairly standard ballad, apart from the solo from Luther. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's the low point for me. Comes back up a bit, in good for you. We almost toted us Hall and Oates for well, me. no. And, Toto, Toto does Dennis Waterman. <laughs> And then it's a feeling, which I think is on on side you know on side one the yeah then up there again and the next best uh, best track for for Rosanna. What about you? But apart from Rosanna, Richard, I absolutely echo everything you said. You're reading my notes. I can't have make believe. Just too much like Smokey. I won't hold you back. Shocking. Um, <laughs> they, they, they call it a power ballad on Wikipedia. Well, I get the ballad bit. No, no, it's like a sad moment in Dallas. It's it's awful. Um, good, good for you, and good for you is where they start picking it up again. Um, mm-hmm. It's not it's not actual lift off, but you know it's kind of the astronauts walking out to check their instrument. But then um, it's a, it's a feeling. Uh, touch paper lip. As far as I'm concerned, it's such a cool track. Such a cool track. Classy, groovy, just fabulous. You know, really, really good. And Steve Picaro, I noticed he, he regrets he never got around to writing a second verse for it. I didn't even know. Well, he said, it, it's, it's the one, he said, wasn't it, it's the one question he's always asked, Steve, why didn't you write a second verse? For oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't understand. I don't get this 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 good for you liftoff thing that you two have got going on. It is the theme to minder. <laughs> it, it, it really is. It's just, it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> Whereas I quite like Make Believe. I won't hold you back. I, I quite like that. The, the one exchange we had about these three albums in the last week was me going, I knew it was a sample from something. Um, yes. And of course it was, yeah, it was another chance by um, Roger Sanchez, which I probably prefer to the table. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. So, yeah, side two, we've got a rocker. Followed by some Beatles, followed by probably some Earth, Wind and Fire, followed <laughs> yeah. by Stevie Wonder, 
Yeah, <laughs> and finishing off with a Stone Cold classic. Uh, so yeah. we've got we've got Afraid of Love, Lovers in the Night, We Made It, Waiting for Your Love, and uh, and Africa. So yeah, so Afraid of Love kicks it off. Yeah, that's the rockiest side song on the album. So not surprising. It's uh, it, it's one of Steve's favourites, I think. Yeah, very much so. A little bit of blenders of Elvis Costello, Cheap Trick, and Blue Oyster Cult. I, I think it's brilliant. Such a gem. It's such a catchy number. And we're in this period now. These four tracks, good for you up to Lovers in the Night. Just this four track breadbasket is, um, this is where this album shines as far as I'm concerned. I love Lovers in the Night. I think Lovers in the Night is probably the best track on the album because Afraid to Love is a tough rocker to follow, but I think they put it off with probably the most interesting number on the album. Yeah. Um, yeah. Paige's, Paige's vocal style. At the first, I didn't think it worked, but um, the choral vocals are great. Love all those swirling synths. That's just crazy, man. And what I wouldn't have given for, and here's one of my bugbears with this album, what I wouldn't give for more solos, like the one that Lukather gives us on Lovers in the Night, probably because you've got so many bloody musicians here. They've all got a bit to play, and you want to hear, hang on a minute, this bloke can play the guitar. You know, I'd love to hear a sort of, you know, 60-second solo from him somewhere. He's Because he's better than what I'm getting on. Anyway, when he when he's doing his showman stuff, they they weren't content with using one twenty four track tape on this album. They used three of them, <laughs> yeah. and I think they're using all seventy two tracks on that. There's <laughs> so much going on. Yeah, it's a great song. It was a risk. Like, it sounds kind of you know it's very different to anything else on there. I think, uh, and I think it really worked. But yeah, like think... you, I'm not bothered about we ma- we made it a bit too Billy. I was Billy Joe and I was, and then uh, yeah, wasting for your love just like a bit at disco, and I don't want to be at disco. I, really, I, I I like a phrase of love, but I, but I do think it kind of exemplifies a bit of the problem with the album, which is that what what are Toto really? You know, I don't mind that. It, no, no, I don't mind it. It's, it's just it, it for me. It's like, well, is it a progressive album, mm. right? Because they're just trying different stuff, and it's all kind of you know, it's almost like an it's almost like a ten ten song jam, isn't it? Is it in some ways. Mm. Or, or or what? Because it's quite rocky, and then it goes all a bit nineteen eighties synth pop, and you've got all sorts of different styles in it. And it kind of the lovers in the night starts off with a bit of ragtime. Yeah. What exactly are you? And what but I tend to feel you? I've always felt the same when I listen to Blue Oyster Cult. You know, I mean, you could I just put away my you know pigeonholes guide to plastic headbanging because every every album is just a, it's just a yeah. it's just an odyssey, isn't it? Really, and, and I, I and I I complete yeah I completely get that, and I think Afraid to Love. Absolutely. I, I got to the same place as you did, Steve. So yeah. I don't have a problem with them doing it. But they are a marketing man's nightmare. <laughs> because how do you market this band? You know, yeah. they're, they're marketed as a rock band, but they're not. I, know, I mean, no, they I are know. a rock band, but they're not really a rock band. So how do you market it? And where do you pigeonhole it? Because in the end, you know, people say, oh, well, you do, you know, it's, they're just unique, man. It's, you can't. No, actually, when you're marketing something, you have to be able to market an audience. And there's, you know, what audience are you going to market this to? Because yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Or, or yeah. you just have two massive singles and then the marketing's out the window, isn't it? But, uh, but that's the point, well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the music shines through. Just look at all. None of them are lookers. You've, you've not got a John Bon Jovi. They could make up for any lack, lack in other departments. So this is much more purely about about the music i mean the, the low point for me on on side two is 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 we made it yeah. uh and like, waiting for your love is yeah. incredibly cheesy yeah but i love it 
Yeah, and that's a big miss for me. So that's that's Mark. That's your low point, Mark. Is it? <laughs> I just I know a thousand times no. Um, I really like Afraid to Love. I love Lovers in the Night. I love Africa. I quite like It's a Feeling. The the other two, we made it, and and the the horror show, the absolute horror show that that is waiting for your love. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, my downer isn't that. My downer isn't that big. I must admit, but it's. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, d- d- they should all be put against the wall and shot. <laughs> oh, I think it's lovely. I think it's, uh, it makes me happy. It just makes me happy. All right, so let, let's build it up then. Um, yes, the one that I think we are all agreed on that beat. The beat that was <laughs> Jeff Beccaro was sitting opposite a guy called Lenny Castro playing the Coppers, and they just started banging out this thing. And just kept going and kept going and kept going. That became, you know, what what we now know as, as the the in, the intro and, and that that whole base uh, for for Africa. Like you said earlier, I, I never tire of this. <laughs> I could I could play this again and again and again. There is so much emotion in it. I love the lift of the chorus. There's just so much feeling. Uh, Paige's uh, vocal style just fits it perfectly. Kimball comes in for the for the uh, choruses and that just lifts it again. They apparently they're, they're sort of placeholder lyrics stuff like when they talk about the Serengeti. It was, uh, the, it was the lyrics they they just put to it to uh, work it out you know, as a song and uh, and they stuck <laughs> and and there it is. Um, oh, it's wonderful, wonderful. Biff Byford would have approved, wouldn't he? He was he was kind of guessing on voyaging lyrics, wasn't he? So. Uh, Anything to do. I, I just think it's brilliant. A cheese upon cheese upon cheese. And um, yeah, it's just the irony. Of, but the, the irony was that the band thought Ros- Rosanna was better than this, didn't they? I mean, you know, not for me. I'm not a long way. But um, anyway, it's all the maracas. So. And the, is there a xylophone? The, 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 synth, the keyboard sounds like a brass band. Everything about this is just so over the top. Steve, it's just it's, brilliant. It's everything, isn't it? It is everything. Yeah. Everything works. It's one of those songs where they've thrown the kitchen sink in yeah. in a very thoughtful way. They've thrown the kitchen sink in and yeah. everything has fallen into place. And it, it mm. absolutely works. So we're going to overlook the Serengeti, are we, the pronunciation? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that may be how it's pronounced. Who knows? <laughs> I'll tell you what, on, on, a seri- on a slightly serious note, and this bothers me enormously, having done a bit of research, and I didn't know any of this. It's what happens when you read the internet, isn't it? This is a really this is this is a song that offends a lot of people on the sort of PC hashtag cancel culture oh, lobby. Fuck them. Yeah, I, I, this is art, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't get it. I'm good. Thank you. Hands off, history <laughs> yeah. rewriters. Yeah. This is this is nothing to do with Edward. We're Constant. not. We're not fucking cancelling <laughs> Africa. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, honestly, there's there's bloody outrage out there. People hate it. You know. What's been interesting, I think, in, in this episode is we, we've picked three albums and, and picked, I think, three amazing, amazing drummers to celebrate. We have picked three albums that actually not aren't just, oh, well, I'll pick what I want, but actually albums for many, many years now that are very close to all our hearts. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. true. Okay. So I think we've got an idea, but highs and lows... Gentlemen, Steve, start with you. Yeah, well, I won't hold you back. 
I won't hold back from giving that a low score, I'm afraid. And um, I've tried to, I've tried to get, I've tried to be original. Um, fuck it, Africa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm with you on the high. Africa every day of the week, easy, easy pick. Waiting for your love. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and uh, the the low for me is I won't hold you back. And the high, and this time, guys, no, no fucking way, I'm not going to choose. Because <laughs> uh, the, these, the, the Rosanna and Africa are both, are both friends. <laughs> They're both coming to the desert islands. They are just both absolutely wonderful. Okay, let me ask you a question then. If we could squeeze some ghost ropes into Africa, would that swing it for you? <laughs> All right, so uh, there we go. Toto for Foxtrot uh, and Struck Down, uh, our three albums to celebrate. Leonard Hayes, Phil Collins, and Jeff Picaro. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the chat. Uh, we'll be back in a few seconds because we've got to score these track by track to see where they'll end up in the Hall of Fame. And I think this is going to be very, very interesting. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Three albums that celebrated three drummers. We kicked off with uh, Phil Collins and Genesis and Foxtrot, their fourth album from 1972. Can I just say the scores are great. All three albums are really good. Mark, you gave it a score of 8.18. Richard, you gave it a score of 8.25. I gave it a score of 8.58. For a grand total, and grand is the opposite word, of 8 point, well, just under 8.34 which is an impressive number. I'm looking forward to seeing where that is in the Hall of Fame. Mark, struck down yesterday and today. Yeah, did a lot better than I thought it was going to do, actually, based on the conversation. And, um, yeah, heartwarming, I think. Steve, you gave it a 7.67, if we're rounding up. Richard, you gave it 7.44, and I gave it an 8.3 dead for an average album score of 7.80833. So not too shabby at all. Richard, Toto 4. Oh, the lowest score of the night, but still I mean, pretty good, really. Uh, I, not surprisingly, gave it the highest of the 7.95. Mark, you were close behind on 7.75. Steve, not as much, because uh, he doesn't understand Rosanna, obviously, 7.15. <laughs> and that gave uh, Toto 4. An overall very respectable 7.62. So, uh, these aren't going to be languishing in the 150s, are they? Uh, let's go over to the Hall of Fame and see where they end up. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Yeah, so three albums, uh, three more albums in the list. The best hard rock, heavy metal and prog albums of all time that we refer to uh, as the Hall of Fame. And you're right, uh, Richard, they're not languishing in the 150s. Uh, at all. In fact, none of them are languishing outside the top 100, which is not really surprising given the scores they've got. Um, and although total, I mean, yeah, let's just say right from the start, getting, getting into the top 100, um, now need, you need to have, uh, a score of more than 7.55. Uh, so, yeah, you're looking at some pretty good albums in, in here. Um, and Toto, uh, with Toto 4, well, they've come in at 88, just between Queen's debut, self-titled debut, and Bon Jovi's difficult second album, 7800 Degrees Fahrenheit. 
Uh, and then we climb up about um, 30 odd places to Struck Down, which gets in at 57 between The Last in Line by Dio and just above 1987 by Whitesnake. Uh, it's not the highest YMT album in the charts. Uh, that little accolade, well, there are two of them actually YMT's Mean Streak and YMT's Black Tiger, both above uh, Struck Down. But I mean, the, the big wins and uh, in this episode, of course, was Foxtrot, which everybody loved unashamedly and almost unconditionally. And that comes in in the top 15, number 13 between Thunder and Lightning by Thin Lizzy and Jones Escape. And just to kind of run down, um, you know, that is the top, that, that's number 13 of a top 15 that includes at the top. Um, Back in Black, Ride the Lightning, Zeppelin 4, Machine Head in 1984. Um, and just to do a roll call down the bottom, well, Nuclear Assault, God bless them, still propping everything up. <laughs> Live at Hammersmith Odeon at number 225. But you've also got Earth Crisis, Gorky Park, Raven, and yes, there with um, Destroy the Machines, Gorky Park, Rock Continue Drop, and Fragile, respectively. That's not too shabby, is it? For uh, three three albums, two of which, well, one of which was released 50 years ago. We'd better reveal to each other what we're all going to be listening to next week, haven't we? Um, last week, Tico, uh, Tico Torres' Tombola of Topics and Themes spat out albums that we wrote off too soon. So the criteria here were an album that you owned that you didn't really pay very much attention to, probably didn't like very much when you first got it, and over the years, you've warmed to it, and now you think it's probably not half bad. So that was the, those are the criteria. I don't know actually whether that's the criteria you two were working to. That's the criteria I was working to. <laughs> so what have we all got? Uh, Richard. I went a bit wider than, than that, which was a, the, <laughs> a, a band <laughs> or a phase of a band that I, that I, that I wrote off. Um, it's fascinating to see Steve's reaction. It's here. Wasp, Steve. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if only. If only that was so. <laughs> when one of my favourite singers and solo artists joined one of my favourite bands, I couldn't get on with them. And that was when Dave Lee Ross exited and Sammy Hogar joined Van Halen. And uh, it's taken me a long, long time to get used to Van Hagar, as we call them. Um, uh, I, I, I could have picked 5150. That was an album that I owned. But I've actually gone for the album that you played me that actually made me realise that I've missed out on, on just what they were capable of. And uh, so that was uh, their album, Balance. Okay. Excellent choice. I should look forward to that because I've always gone with that album. Steve? Sorry, I missed all of that. I crashed out. Oh. You did. Um, so basically... Which has chosen Balance by Van Hagar. Oh, you're fucking joking, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Plan B. Um, is that what you went for? I was going to go 5150. So, listen, this is one of my favourite bands, all right? This is one of my favourite bands. And, and, and their first two albums, just, you know, I come over on a regular basis. And then they vanished without trace with two piles of absolute tosh. Um, so, when I picked up, which I bought them both, obviously because i loved the band to bits so when i bought album five it was with heavy heart and it but from the opening track it disappointed on a grand scale but it picked up it has picked up and i've enjoyed a lot more of it as it's gone on and i am going to bring to the party 
detonator. Yes. By Rat. Fantastic. Oddly enough, I very nearly went for Dancing Undercover. Okay. I would never have done that. So, yeah. (laughs) I'm still not warm to that. I think that's better than you think it is. But anyway, I didn't go for that in the end. Um, But I'm glad you went for Detonator because that's another album that I think um, has been sort of widely overlooked, largely Mm. because, well, particularly Richard Sky was a bloody awful album. Um, Anywho, uh, we're not here to talk about Richard Sky or Dancing Undercover. So when one of my favourite singers joined one of my favourite bands, uh, I couldn't get on with it at all. <laughs> Does this sound familiar? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a, a singer who I think is possibly one of the greatest that rock has ever produced and who describes himself as this band's worst singer ever. So you are going to spend the next week listening to Born Again by Black Sabbath. Ah, oh, brilliant. brilliant. Which I now think is... Production aside, because I'm bringing another album that's got some very iffy production, but song-wise, I just think it's an outstanding album now. So we'll see whether you agree. Okay, well, we've enjoyed it. I hope you have too. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you for those three next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.